Good morning, all. I'm happy to welcome you to this episode of Counter Melody. I'd also like to give a shout out to my newest supporter, Heather. Thank you very much for your support on Patreon, Heather. And also a big thank you to my brother, Jonathan, who upped his level of support. So you people make me very happy. And I hope that I give you something as well in return. If any of my listeners, old or new, would also like to become supporters of the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody and you too can become a supporter through either a monthly or a yearly pledge. I have a big episode today paying tribute to three very different but important singers who departed this earth in the early months of this current calendar year. So without any further ado, here's Claudia. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path. This week's episode. Last week, I paid brief tribute to both countertenor James Bowman and soprano Virginia Dayani, and I will be devoting further attention to both of them today, as well as to the Viennese soprano Melita Musei, who died in her native Austria on the 18th of January, aged 95. Let's begin the episode with brief examples of all three of these singers at their very best. First, here is James Bowman singing Lucidissima Face from Cavalli's La Calisto. James was the first countertenor to appear at Glyndebourne, singing the role of Endymione in this opera. As was typical of Glyndebourne in those days, they performed a realization of this early Baroque opera by the conductor Raymond Lepard, who leads the London Philharmonic Orchestra.
Melita Musei is much less known to U.S. audiences, I would say, than either of the other singers that I'm presenting today. But she was one of a handful of superb jugendlich dramatisch voices that emerged in the 50s and 60s. We'll talk more about her a little bit later in the episode, but for the moment, let me offer you this mid-60s recording of her singing Robert Stolz's magnificent operetta aria Du sollst der Kaiser meiner Seele sein. The composer himself leads the Berliner Symphonica. Wenn du mich liebst, hast du zu in meinem Herzen deine Krone und schaltest frei auf goldenen Throne. Closer to home in the U.S., we commemorate the passing of Romanian soprano Virginia Zayani, who was a force of nature and one of the last bastion of the old tradition. Because she was such a monumental figure, I'm going to offer her in two brief excerpts at the top here. First, from a 1957 live performance at the Stoll Theatre in London. Here is the end of the mad scene of Lucia di Lammermoor. The performance took place in May 1957, and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra is conducted here by Italian maestro Vincenzo Bellezza.
20 years later, Zayani returned to her native Romania, where she made a complete recording of Tosca, opposite fellow Romanian singers Cornelio Fanteanu as Cavaradossi and Nicolae Herle, whom I featured on an earlier episode, as Scarpia. We're going to hear the very brief but extremely exciting and dramatic moment in Act 3 when Tosca tells Mario about her murder of the evil police chief Scarpia. Now let's consider each of these singers separately for a few moments. As I mentioned last week, James Bowman, who died on March 27th at the age of 81 at his home in the south of London, was surely the most important British countertenor after Alfred Deller. I met James on a number of occasions, including when I myself was singing the role of Oberon in Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream at a British summer festival called Broomhill, which for a few years had its sights set on becoming the Glyndebourne of Tunbridge Wells. That never actually happened, but they did do a number of very impressive opera productions with fantastic musical staff, and I will never forget when James, whom I had met a few years prior to that in Santa Fe, where he was singing Polinesso in Ariodante, came to the theater to coach me on the role of Oberon. He was an incredibly generous person who had a fantastic sense of humor, quite bawdy, since we already had a passing acquaintance I knew that we would have a good rapport, and he helped me enormously. Now, mind you, in 1967, he had auditioned, just barely out of school, for Benjamin Britten for production of Midsummer Night's Dream, and was cast in that role. And Britten had discussed the possibility of rewriting the part 
of Obron because when he composed the work originally, it was for the very limited voice of Alfred Deller. All countertenors, I would say, who have sung the role since have felt a little bit straitjacketed by the very narrow range imposed upon the music by Deller's limitations. But James gave me some very interesting pointers, slight rewrites to the part that lent the role a more dramatic profile. And also, and this was very important, he very much emphasized to me the evilness of Oberon. And this was something that I very much enjoyed bringing to the stage. I first became familiar with James Bowman's voice on recordings that he made with David Monroe and the early music consort of London. This was medieval and Renaissance music for the most part, but later at the very end of David Monroe's tragically short life, they also did record Monteverdi and Purcell and other more Baroque repertoire. But my favorite stuff of James, I must confess, was the very earliest stuff. I thought his voice had this otherworldly quality that really lent itself to some of that music from the medieval era. I'm going to play you one verse of Walter von der Vogelweide's song Palestine Lied, which was from a 1971 album of music from the Crusades. James is accompanied here by lutenist James Tyler. operatic performer, James had a big personality that expressed itself with great vigor on the stage. He himself felt that he was not such a terrific actor, but boy, did he have stage presence. I'll remember that Polinesso as long as I live. Now, this is just a question of my personal taste. I was not a huge fan of his singing voice. But I came from a very different tradition of high male singing. I was trying to emulate 
a more, shall we say, continental sound. James came up through the British choir tradition, and while his voice was much bigger and more robust, God forgive me for using that horrible word, than countertenors who came before him, and many who came after, by the way. Nevertheless, he set a different standard for countertenor singing. I'm just going to play a couple really short examples. I have several that represent him at what I consider to be his best. First, in 1970, he was engaged by Nicolas Harnoncourt for Harnoncourt's first recording of the St. Matthew Passion. And we're going to hear a brief example of James's superb musicianship and ability to move his voice in a very natural and unaffected way in the aria Können Tränen meiner Wangen. I had mentioned Britain earlier. We're not going to hear James singing the most famous music that Britain wrote for him. I'll tell you briefly what those pieces were. First of all, he did a number of realizations of the music of Henry Purcell, including Sweeter Than Roses, which James recorded with Britain at the piano. Britain also wrote his fourth canticle, a setting of T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi, for James, bass baritone John Shirley Quirk, and Britain's partner, tenor Peter Pierce. This is a thorny work, difficult to perform, difficult to appreciate and understand, perhaps, but one that rewards its listeners. I thought I had a recording of it in my collection, and it seems to have disappeared. So just if you're able to give a listen to that piece, it's very much worth hearing. But Britain also did a realization and arrangement of Henry Purcell's stage work, The Fairy Queen, which he recorded with a starry array of singers in 1970, one of whom was James. I very much like James's work in Henry Purcell's music. This is One Charming Night. Britain himself leads the English Chamber Orchestra. Charming night gives more 
Britain was composing his final opera, Death in Venice, Peter Pierce suggested to him that, how can I do this without going into a lot of detail about the plot? Okay, the aging writer Aschenbach has taken a holiday in Venice. He's a rather repressed person, shall we say, and he finds himself drawn to and lusting after a Polish adolescent boy named Tadzio. Tadzio and his friends stage a reenactment of the games of Apollo on the beach in Venice. Apollo is represented by an offstage voice. Peter Pierce suggested to Britain that the androgynous, otherworldly quality of Apollo could best be evoked if Apollo's short offstage interjections were set for the voice of James Bowman. It was later revealed that the reason that Apollo does not appear on stage is because James was not available for the rehearsals for the opera when it premiered in 1973. I know that other productions have put the countertenor on stage, but in the original production, he remained an offstage voice. I have pieced together the countertenor interjections as heard in the first production of the piece, at Alborough in the summer of 1973. This performance took place on the 22nd of June, a week after the piece premiered. Stuart Bedford leads the English Chamber Orchestra. <laughs> Oh, 
I had also mentioned the fourth canticle, which Britton wrote for James, Shirley Quirk, and Piers. James also recorded and performed frequently the second canticle of Britton's Abraham and Isaac. This is one of my favorite of Britton's pieces, and one which I have sung countless times. The text comes from the medieval Chester miracle play and is a depiction of the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has, by God's intervention, fathered in old age a young son, Isaac. God, being God, has detected that Abraham loves his son too much, and so he demands that he sacrifice him on an altar. Such is the Old Testament God. What can I say? This is the moment in the very dramatic piece when Abraham and Isaac reach the summit of the mountain where the sacrifice is to take place, and Isaac, inquiring where the sacrifice is, is told that he himself is to be the sacrifice. As Abraham, we hear tenor Robert Tier, and Philip Ledger is the pianist. This recording is from 1976.
According to one of the obituaries that I read, he suffered a vocal crisis in the late 1970s, but nonetheless got his voice back into working order and sang into the new millennium. All countertenors owe him an enormous debt of gratitude for the example that he set, for the peerless musicianship that he displayed, and for his generosity with his younger colleagues. He leaves behind his partner of nearly 50 years, to whom we all extend our deepest condolences. Now it's time to turn briefly to the Austrian soprano Melita Musei. As can probably be determined, she was of Hungarian parentage, but was born and died in the city of Vienna. She began her career at the theater in Regensburg in 1950, and from there she became a member of the ensemble at the Opera House in Kiel in 1952. And from 1954 to 68, she was one of the leading sopranos at the Staatsoper in Hamburg. She also made important guest engagements at the Staatsoper here in Berlin, as well as the Komische Oper. She sang Mozart and Strauss roles, among other composers, with the Wiener Staatsoper, and was also a featured guest at the Zurich Opera House. She also appeared at Edinburgh, Salzburg, Schwetzingen, and other international festivals. In addition, she was a well-recorded singer, I featured in the past a number of records from the 1960s of operas in German translation, and she's featured on many of these on the Electrola label. She was also a well-beloved singer of operetta and appeared in both recordings and on television in some of the biggest and best operetta parts. Because she's so little known, I'm going to do a bonus episode on her this weekend, which shows the full range of her roles. But because so much of her repertoire overlapped with Virginia Zayani, I didn't think it was fair to present her in comparison with Zayani, but rather to allow her to stand on her own merits. But I do want to play one thing for you, Elsa's Traum, Elsa's Dream, from Wagner's Lohengrin. This is a 1965 recording that she made with Edward Downes leading the London Philharmonic Orchestra. You hear the beautiful shimmer on her sound, the clarity of her diction, the refulgence of her high voice, and the solid anchoring of her low voice. She was one of the very best of the sopranos in this period, and I'm happy to share her with you. In Thank you. 
Now it's time to move on to today's main subject, Romanian soprano Virginia Zeani, who was born October 21st, 1925, in a small Transylvanian village in Romania, and who died on the 20th of March at an assisted living facility in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, where she moved following her retirement from her teaching position at Indiana University. Many of my listeners will have known Zayani personally. Perhaps she was even your teacher. If so, man, did you have a great example. Zayani, from her very earliest days, was drawn to the sound of the human voice. She claimed in an interview that she heard very little singing except from the Roma people who would sometimes perform outside the village. But of opera, she knew nothing. So she would make up her own music. Speaking of make your own kind of music, which we did just a couple weeks ago, she did exactly that. When she was six years old, the family relocated to Bucharest, and she, on her own volition, immediately began seeking out more opportunities for studying and performing. Over the course of her long career, the role for which she was most celebrated was probably Violetta in La Traviata. She sang the role for the first time in Italy in 1947 and kept the role in her repertoire for about 30 years. In 1968, she returned to Romania where she participated in a complete recording of the opera with fellow Romanian artists Jon Buzea, tenor, and Nicolae Herlea, baritone. I'm going to play the very end of the opera for you, Prendi queste l'immagine, Violetta's death scene. You will hear that incredible combination of qualities, the vocal and technical discipline, the plangency in the voice, the generosity of spirit, the heat and intensity of her interpretation. I think of Zeani as a very hot singer. She was not at all cool in her approach to the music, but rather it vibrated throughout her entire being. Thank you. 
singers as diverse as Magda Olivero, Joan Sutherland, and even Maria Callas, for whom Zeani professed the highest regard. As Zeani was turning 16, she became aware that the Polish soprano Lidia Lipowska, who had been a superstar at the Met in the early years of the century and had sung opposite Caruso and others, was now in Bucharest, and she, unbeknownst to her mother, went to seek out the advice and tutelage of Lipowska, who was a lighter voice than Zeani, perhaps, but who nevertheless had that dramatic fire, as well as an incredibly solid technique, both of which she reinforced in her young student. Here's an example of Lipowska herself in a 1912 recording of the so-called melting scene from Rimsky-Korsakov's fairy tale opera Snegorochka, the Snow Maiden. Oh, 
Shortly after the war, Zayani boarded a boat that would eventually take her to Italy, where she hoped to perfect her technique and become that great opera singer that she had always dreamed of being. One of the first stops that she made, if you will, upon reaching Milano was to the great Italian tenor Aureliano Pertile, with whom she coached her roles and who, in her own description, helped her find the soul of the sound in her voice. On an interview I heard with her, she spoke of going to Pertile's house, and when he appeared at the door, she burst into tears upon first meeting her great idol, whom she knew from his many recordings. As an example of Pertile's greatness, let's give a listen to his recording from the year 1928 of Celeste Aida. This was a complete recording that he made with the forces of La Scala under the direction of the maestro Carlo Sabaino. Zayani's operatic debut took place when she was 22 years old, replacing the Italian soprano Margherita Carosio, whom you may remember as the singer that Callas also replaced when she made her first appearances as Elvira in Puritani. In Zayani's case, her debut was as Violetta, 
a role which she sang more than 600 times over the course of her career, and which we've already sampled. In no time, unsurprisingly, she had conquered many of the Italian opera houses, and the majority of her career was focused in Italy. In 1956, she made her debut at La Scala, singing the role of Cleopatra in Handel's Giulio Cesare. There's a recording of this. The sound is not fantastic, but the singing is out of this world. If we're talking about big-boned Baroque, which I often do, this is a perfect representation of that. This is from the La Scala performances in 1956, and Gian Andrea Gavazzeni leads the Scala Orchestra. Here is an excerpt from Se Pietà di me non senti. sang the title role in Giulio Cesare, caught her eye, and she caught his. His name was Nicola Rossi Lemeni, born in Istanbul to an Italian father and a Russian mother. He was already having a significant career at this point in time. In fact, in 1952, he had recorded excerpts from one of his greatest roles, Boris Gadonov, with none other than Leopold Stokowski leading the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. And we're going to hear an excerpt from Boris's monologue, I Have Attained the Highest Power. Mm-hmm. 
taken Rossi Lemeni all that seriously as a singer. I don't care for him on the recordings that he made with Kalas, but one of my faithful listeners suggested to me recently that I might do a full episode on him, and I said, oh yeah, sure, but I've never been steered wrong by this particular listener. Now this week, alongside listening to all of Zeani's recordings, I've been listening to more of Rossi Lemini, and I have to say, he was the genuine article. He opened the first season of Lyric Opera of Chicago, singing Don Giovanni in 1954, having already appeared at the Met, at the Teatro Colon, at Covent Garden, and all of the world's big opera houses. He created important roles in operas by Renzo Rossellini, the role of Eddie in Uno Sguardo dal Ponte, or as you might know it in English, A View from the Bridge, based on the Arthur Miller play, of course. He also created the role of Thomas Abeckett in Pizzetti's opera Assassinio nella Cattedrale, adapted by Pizzetti himself from T.S. Eliot's play Murder in the Cathedral. Zayani herself, of course, had participated in the world premiere in January 1957 of Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites, and we heard an excerpt from that premiere performance 
at the beginning of last week's episode. In an interview, she said that singing the role of Blanche made her realize that she was ready to become a mother. And so, while Rossi Lemeni was appearing in the world premiere of Pizzetti's opera, she was pregnant with their son Alessandro. If she had not been pregnant, she would have sung in the world premiere of Pizzetti's opera as well. As it is, she appeared in a radio broadcast led by Pizzetti himself in December 1958 as the first chorus leader, and we hear her in that role in an excerpt from that radio recording. Pizzetti himself leads the orchestra and chorus of the Rai in Torino. Silimeni and Zeani sang together a good deal of the time in repertoire ranging from Eugene Onegin to Rubinstein's The Demon to Mascagni's Il Piccolo Mara to Boito's Mephistofele. My favorite recorded example of them performing together is from a magnificent radio broadcast from, again, the Rai forces in Torino. This is of the duet Quanto Amore from Donizetti's Elisir d'Amore. This is quite simply the way this music was written to be sung. 
They both have such a wonderful sense of pointing of the text and varying kinds of virtuosity. The way he delivers his rapid-fire patter text is absolutely on point. And she knows how to bring a smile into the more sustained lines. I just couldn't love this more. impazzato tutto il sesso femminino e per giovani impazzato e il gallo della checca tutte segue tutte becca e il gallo della checca tutte segue tutte becca
And this gives me an opportunity to play you a later recording of Zeani's. So when they attended the 25th anniversary of the Lyric Opera of Chicago's founding in 1979, the dean of the School of Music of Indiana University happened to be there. And he mentioned to them that Eileen Farrell who had been teaching there, was retiring due to health concerns, and he asked them if they might be interested in both taking on teaching positions there. Evidently, Nicola had diabetes, and as a result, his performing days were numbered, something that I know, having experienced it myself. They took the joint position and they taught there and turned out an entire generation of fine young singers. He died on March 12, 1991, at the age of 70. In the year 1981, as her performing career was also winding down, Zeani sang a gala concert that was a benefit for a school that Jerome Hines was founding in New Jersey called AMTI, Opera Music Theater Institute, I believe it was. And on this occasion, she sang three arias brilliantly, including Margherita's aria, L'altra notte, and we're going to hear the second verse from that performance.
Gianni sang one more time on the operatic stage, and that was appearing as Mother Marie in the San Francisco Opera's revival of Dialogues of the Carmelites, which starred singers for whom Poulenc's opera had formed a central part of their artistic careers. Leontine Price as Lidoine, Régine Crespin as Croissy, and Virginia Zayani as Mother Marie. I believe that if you search well enough, you can find a recording of the premiere of that production on YouTube. In 2004, Zayani retired from IU and moved to West Palm Beach, Florida, where she continued to occasionally teach. In listening to interviews with her and reading interviews, the only true regret she expressed was that she had not made more recordings. She made two recital albums for Decca London in the late 50s, and there were many other missed opportunities with the big recording companies, including Deutsche Grammophon and EMI. But as I mentioned, she did record two of her greatest roles, Violetta in 1968 and Tosca in 1977 for the Romanian label Electrochord. And for that company in 1969, she also made a fantastic album of Verdi and Puccini arias. This, I think, represents the absolute summit of her achievement, and much as I would love to play the entire thing for you today, I encourage you to look it up and hear that incredible combination of elements that made her such a vibrant and dynamic performer. Sometimes when she was performing Verismo repertoire, she could absolutely sound as if she was tearing her voice to shreds. And yet, the solidity of her technique always kept her voice remarkably wobble-free and free of technical difficulties. I find her to be equally successful in the bel canto repertoire, in Verdi, in Puccini, and in Verismo, as well as her forays into the German repertoire, Zenta in Flying Dutchman, Agathe in Freischütz, the Russian repertoire, particularly Tatiana in Onegin, and in the French repertoire, 
Massonet's Manon and Thais are also vital interpretations. But from that recital album that she made for Electrochord, I'm going to play you one Verdi aria, one Puccini aria. And it was hard to select, believe me. But I'm going to play you, because it's one of my favorite Verdi arias, the conclusion of Tu che le vanità from Don Carlo. The conductor here is Mihai Brediceanu. Oh, 
in Verdi, Zayani demonstrated her ability to sing vaulting vocal lines. But when she sang Puccini, she did it the way that I really love to hear it, with attention to detail, with focus on the words, with color, with a variety of dynamic and tonal shadings. It's the way that Maria sang Puccini, and it's the way that one doesn't hear Puccini sung enough these days. As an example of her way with Puccini, I'm going to play for you a portion of Un bel di from that same 1969 recital recording. Chi sarà, chi sarà, e come sarà giunto, episode winds down, I confess, it was challenging for me to find a way of linking three such disparate singers. But you know what? I figured out a way. Each one of these singers sang some version of the Willow Song. James Bowman sang the original as a lute song, the one that is referenced in Shakespeare's Othello. So we're going to hear James and lutenist Robert Spencer in that beautiful 1972 lute song recording that we sampled last week. These are verses one and three of the Willow Song. Sing all 
I mentioned that Melita Musili and Zayani shared a great deal of repertoire, yet they had a very different approach to it. Both of them, for instance, sang Desdemona in Verdi's Otello in the mid-1960s. Melita Musili recorded the whole extended excerpt from the last act of Verdi's Otello in German translation. So I'm going to play you a portion of the Willow Song concluding with Desdemona's heartfelt farewell to Emilia as she recognizes that her life is about to be brought to a close. singers who really couldn't have been more different. James Bowman, Melita Musi, and Virginia Zeani. 
Dayani sang the role of Desdemona in two different settings of the opera, Verdi's, of course, as well as a rare revival in 1960 at the Rome opera of Rossini's setting of the opera. I'm not exactly sure when, but a number of years later, she made a rare commercial recording for Philips with Alberto Zedda leading the Orchestra Sinfonica di Torino. Some people think that Rossini's setting of the Willow Song is even better than Verdi's. I say it's apples and oranges, just the way that Musegi and Zeani are two very different singers, and there's no reason that we have to choose between the two of them. But to bring this episode to a close, I would like to offer you an extended excerpt of Virginia Zeani in a portion of Rossini's Willow Song from Otello, concluding with her prayer that in sleep she find peace. De calma ocel nel sonno. As Emilia, we briefly hear the mezzo-soprano, Gloria Foglizzo. Questo il lugubre fin, m'ascolta.
My dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.